from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing the Q&A from our sneak preview screening of First Reformed, the new film from Paul Schrader, starring Ethan Hawke, Amanda Seyfried, and Cedric the Entertainer. Hawke plays a depressed, middle-aged pastor forced into a crisis of faith via his relationship to a troubled young activist. First Reformed opens in select theaters this weekend. Schrader, Hawk, and Cedric the Entertainer all joined us this past Tuesday to discuss the film after our sneak preview screening. Let's go to that now. Why don't we begin uh, with a question for Paul about whether... Uh, he sees the same thing that other people are seeing, which, which is to say, like, I've been reading a lot of press in the, over the last few days uh, about the film, and there seems to be, I've, I've noticed a lot of critics saying that First Reformed uh, marks some kind of um, a break or a turn in your, in your, recent, uh, your recent work. I was, well, curi- I was curious to what extent you agree with that assessment. I, I don't know if it's a return or a culmination. Um, I mean, it is extremely gratifying to feel a sense of completion. Uh, In March of uh, 1969, I was a film critic, and I went to the Los Feliz Theater to see Pickpocket. And that morning, during that 75 minutes of that film, two things happened. One is I saw a bridge of style between my religious upbringing and my current obsession with cinema. And the other was I saw this kid in a room writing a journal. And so those seeds dropped in the Petri dish that morning. And now 50 years later, they've risen into uh, vines that have met. So it's a rather poetic way of saying it feels good. But maybe what like distinguishes this film is there is, I mean, you do feel a very strong sort of harmony between the aesthetic, the aesthetic, uh, the politics, and the sense of, of spirituality and morality. So I'm just, I guess I was just curious, uh, what are the thought processes that, that cause you to arrive at, at this film right now? Well, you know, movies can operate in different ways. Most movies are desperately hungry for your approval. They, they grab you by the lapels and they show you beautiful people and explosions and they play music to tell you how to feel all the time. And you don't have to do anything. You don't know how you're going to have to turn a page. You don't even have to be awake. You know, it, 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 it just washes over you and you are totally passive. And then there's another kind of film which says, no, 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 I'm not going to give you everything you want. I'm going to hold some things back. And if you are interested, then I'm going to hold some more things back. And if you want to really come to me uh, or the story, uh, come on in. There's a place for you here. If not, please leave. And so when you're doing a passive-aggressive film, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's it's a delicate dance. You know, when you're using the scalpel of boredom, to carve a portrait, uh, sometimes it's just boring, <laughs> as a risk. Well, you... <laughs> 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 and, 
And uh, and and uh, you brought up pickpocket. I think since this film, you know, quite literally concerns a country priest who keeps a diary, yeah. people are people are talking about your relationship with Brisson's work and trans your book Transcendental Style and Film. Um, and there is, you know, Diary of a Country Priest is is here, just as yep. it was in Taxi Driver. Uh, but I also see, you know, like it seems really significant to me in in revisiting the film that um, that you interviewed Brisson during the making of The Devil, probably, which seems very close to the heart of this film and which I think is explicitly referenced at least once. Could you maybe just talk about this kind of, this frame for looking well, at I'd, the president? I'd written this book and I, I wanted to meet Brisson and he, he had retired from the public arena more or less, but he wrote back to me and said, my wife says I have to meet you. And so uh, on uh, Ile Saint Louis, we, he had a house there, we met. It's the oddest interview. It was published in Film Comment um, because I would ask a question and he would give a different answer. But the extraordinary hubris of me at that age, I was on my way to Cannes because Taxi Driver was going to be shown, the first script I had written. And at the end of the interview, Brayson says to me, so do you think your film will win the big prize? And I said, yes, it will. And it did. I mean, where does that kind of arrogance come from? <laughs> you know, I look back at that and said, "What? Who the fuck did you think you were?" <laughs> um, Ethan, uh, could you talk a bit about what it, what attracted you to this role? I think it's your, I, unless I'm mistaken, it's your first time working with with Paul. Um, uh, could you just talk a bit about, yeah, what, what that initial attraction was, and then kind of how do you, how do you prepare for uh, such an intense uh, uh, role? Well, you know, we live in a time period where it feels to me sometimes like big business has completely usurped the art of filmmaking. You know, it's just kind of eaten it alive. It turns everything into an advertisement for something else and a unit of sale and and you needn't read much more than eight or nine pages of the script to realize that there was uh, a human being at work in this movie and a very well-educated human being and a human being with something to say. And it's exciting as an actor to be, have something asked of you. And I, I mean, I, I'd always wanted to work with Paul. I feel incredibly blessed to have that intersection happen with such a great role, you know? Um, I read it the day I got it and called you back and or wrote you back and we met and wanted to make this movie. It, it, it felt like it needed to be made to me, whatever that means. It, I read it and I was like, this movie has to be made. And I'm so glad to be here today with all of you. And Cedric, I, I wanted to put the same question to you, but also, you know, in terms of, like, your preparations, uh, I'm especially curious, given, given your character, Pastor Jeffers, uh, were, were you pulling from any, like, real megachurch-type figures? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm friends with uh, several uh, of these kind of megachurch guys, and so when... Um you know, when looking at this role, one, you know, for me, you know, you know, being a comedian and to have, you know, Paul call and offer you a role in this movie, you kind of like looking at the phone, like, what is going on again? You know? <laughs> and so, but, you know, 
the idea that you know when he well, you know how he explained is that you know he needed this character to be somebody that when you saw him when you saw him you automatically felt like you trusted him or liked him you know and that's kind of a brand thing and you know and I you know so I was really appreciative of that you know uh, and so you know when you're thinking about the big mega churches. You know, I see these guys and I know them, you know, up close. So you kind of know, you know that they're human and that they have these kind of faults and frailties. But now we live in a world where, you know, the spotlight is put on someone and they are considered, you know, a, a deity themselves. And so, you know, I just thought it was going to be an opportunity to show that that complexity, that that idea that this is your preacher yet. He's a person that has to juggle business. He has to juggle friendships. He has to he has to juggle alliances between what the parishioners want and then what it takes to run this big organization. And so I thought that you know those questions, you know, what what Ethan's character was going through, and then my my character in a very you know subliminal way was doing the same thing. And yeah, so the so. Uh, the first time I spoke to Cedric on the phone. The first thing I said to him is, you know, I did not cast you to be funny. And he said, I know that. <laughs> and so then I knew, you know, uh, because I was afraid that he would have thought that, you know, he was supposed to spice up the script. And I said, no, 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 I mean, you know, it's, it's not that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and it is. It, it's a natural reaction for me, you know, like you, 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 you hear first reformed and you... You're kind of looking at, you know, uh, you know, guys going losing it over the environment, and I'm like, oh man, you know, I can, I can jump in with some nice jokes on that. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you've all you've all uh, brought this up uh, at one point or another, but um, there is like a very strong sense of political necessity uh, in the film. And Paul, I think all of your work is is political or spiritual in one way or another, but this is perhaps your first film that so directly addressed the, the, eco, the eco apocalypse around the corner. Um, can you just talk about, talk a bit about, uh, you know, why it seemed so Well, I mean, these are serious times and I make no apology for doing a serious movie. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I was at a, uh, a, a I've been doing a, a seminary tour, various seminaries, and I went to the seminary, and someone said that, sort of said, tried to defend the car, the film against the accusation of elitism. I said, what's wrong with elitism? You're in, I didn't say fucking, I said, you're in college. Why are you going to college if you don't believe in elitism? <laughs> you're here to learn the best. You're not here to learn the lowest. And uh, so, you know, um, I think that, you know, in our culture today, there is this kind of odd notion that um, elitism is not what we aspire to. Um, and, you know, that we're all... You know, anyway, what was your question? I forgot your question. <laughs> um... <laughs> I think you might you might have answered uh, the bulk of it, in fact. But I think it was just about you know um, just sort of sort of why why did you um, how how did you decide to find room for ecological crisis like in your work now? Well, you know, I mean, humanity has been having a discussion for about ten thousand years: who are we, why are we here, where are we going? And this has always been a hypothetical conversation. 
will have the discussion, our children will have it, and then their children will have it ad infinitum. And now, for the first time in human history, people are starting to realize that that discussion may not be hypothetical, and that there may in fact be an end to the species as we know it. Well, that lends a lot of gravitas to everything. And it's, so it's using that gravitas, the notion of the frailty of our species and our, our life here, uh, throws into stark relief all of these age-old questions. And so, yes, that was a way to ratchet up the dial. And I got one more before I we turn it over to the audience. Um, you know, uh, I mean, because you're a you're a critic, um, and and people are always. Uh, I think whenever you have a new film, people are quick to find you know references or potential influences or so on. I was I was wondering I was wondering if there were films if you're a director who like shows films to the actors in advance to sort of um, establish a rough idea of, of what, what you want to do? Well, I mean, the actors are smart enough to figure it out. They know the context in which you're working. And if Ethan wants to rewatch Bergman or Bresson or Dreyer, put it in context, he should. But if he doesn't, you know, that's fine too. And uh, so you don't... You can't, you know, you can lead an actor to water, but you can't make him drink. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, you, you have to sort of trust the intuitive smarts of the team you're working with. All right, so we can take some questions from the audience, and we should have people with microphones who bring you microphones. Uh, let's start over here. Wait for the microphone, please. Thank you for making this movie. I thought it was phenomenal, every moment of it. And um, Ethan and Cedric, you were unbelievable. But I have a question about the ending, which is, um, <laughs> um, I know what I think of the ending. And of course, art is, in, is held by the viewer. But in your contemplation, was he um, the reverend? Um, was he saved? Was it a, a hopeful or a despairing ending? Well, it's a great question. And um, one of the things that I think is hard about doing a Q&A with this movie is it robs you all of the experience of the ending because the film is designed, it's, it's ringing a bell and asking you to to vibrate off that ending as you walk out into your life. And it's, it's clearly not, if it wanted to give an answer, it would, right? And so the idea of doing a Q&A kind of robs you guys of, of, of the real ending of this movie, which is a vibration. And my character says in one of his best speeches to the young man in the beginning when the, that, that hope and despair are to be held in, in your hands at the same time that that's wisdom. You know, we live in a world where everybody wants, is filled with dualistic thinking. You know, it's either this or it's either that. And, and wisdom is holding both of those in your hands. And for me, playing the part, 
It was some kind of vision of a dance of hope and despair, a kiss of hope and despair, spinning around and around and around and around and around. And sometimes I could imagine that it was death itself, heaven, somebody that you love embracing you. Uh, it could be real. It, you know, it, it's all those things. And what I loved about working on the movie is watching Paul seek, seek out the right way to, to answer this unanswerable question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, see you later. <laughs> Was this your first time collaborating with this cinematographer? And can you speak a little bit about how you shot the close-ups? Uh... The film before this, Doggy Dog, which is in many ways so similar to First Reformed. <laughs> uh, I, I put together a young team because I wanted, uh, I wanted to get unprejudiced imagination. And, uh, and I like that young team. So I used the whole team again on this one. Uh, so Alex Dynan, who sh- shot that, he's only done two features and they're both mine. Uh, he makes too much money on commercials to do otherwise. <laughs> um, so that was Alex. Um, th- I first had the idea to do this movie after a conversation with uh, Pavel Pavlovsky, who had done Ida, and he, that film was in this format and in black and white. And I said, you know, it's time now to finally, for me, to make a film of this nature. And so I naturally thought of that same format in black and white. I had a delivery requirement that forbade black and white, so color, not much color. And, uh, but, um, you know, it is, uh, this whole new world of cinematography is so different than it ever was before. You know, cinematographers used to have secrets, you have secret you know, you, if you wanted James Wong Hao, you had to hire James Wong Hao. Today, you go to over, over to an NYU student and say, give me James Wong Hao. <laughs> give me Storaro. Give me Gordy Willis. And they give it to you. Uh, because so much of film is now done uh, in, in post. But, uh, you know, Alex was terrific. One decision Alex made, you know, you can put an algorithm into the camera and into the uh, process to make digital look more film-like. And he said, no, I, I don't think this should look more film-like. I think it should look digital. And uh, I, that was an interesting call on his part. And, uh, and I, I agreed with it, or I, I came to agree with it. Uh, I also thought it was a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, I'm curious, you've made movies that are sort of about the richness and maybe the violence of an inner life um, and kind of, you know, what goes on in somebody's head who's unwell or maybe just thinking about the world as it is. Um, And you kind of had the experience with Taxi Driver of seeing how that could turn into a sort of cultural pollution uh, with Hinckley. And I wonder if you worry at all about 
putting those things out into the world, uh, or if you think that reflecting on your own sort of inner life sort of begets many good things and many bad things? There are several answers to that question. Uh, one is that if you censor art, you don't censor life. So what happens if you ban crime and punishment? You still have Raskolnikov, but you just don't have crime and punishment. And so, you know, that's the danger of trying to do this preemptive censorship. I, um, I don't think there's much a movie can do or a book can do anymore to outdistance the surrealness of our political life at the moment. So, I mean, uh, you know, if, if Donald Trump wore a suicide vest tomorrow, you'd say, oh, well, he went there. Uh, you know, I mean, there's almost no place he can go where you say, well, he went there. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and, and while we're on it, you know, there is uh, something in the DNA of Christianity of, uh, about blood. The, the streets of old Jerusalem ran red with blood of sacrifice. Jesus came, did a symbolic sacrifice so we didn't have to kill all those animals. But it's still blood, washed in the blood. There's a fount that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And when Christians go off the rails, it's not surprising that this is where they go off. They get confused between the sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, and their own blood. And they start to think that if they suffer enough and do enough penance, and, and they will enable their own salvation. This is a pathology. This is a blasphemy. But it is completely understandable. And also, it's the same thing as jihadism. So it's not a blasphemy that's unique to Christianity. You know, it's in Islam as well. I guess that was, <laughs> I, 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 I guess that was a little heavy. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, like, a couple of quick things. One for, for, like, for Mr. Schrader, uh, I just found it like, really fascinating that as we get to the end and we, and we, we see we see uh, Pastor Toller, you know, gearing up with the uh, with a suicide vest. It's like you're really winding the audience up to expect a kind of taxi driver sort of thing, and then and then you sort of pull the rug out from under that. And it, it's it's. I mean, I thought it's not a question. I just thought it was like really great. And for 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 uh, like Ethan, first of all, thank you very much for Seymour and introduction. And also, I find you have a, really a fascinating career because because. You do, you've done vampire films, you've done action films, you've done films with Richard Linklater, you've done a film now with Paul Schrader, and Maudie, that type of thing. And I just have the feeling that you might really prefer these kinds of roles over, let's say, the other more sort of, sort of, sort of genre types of things. And, and maybe not, I don't know, maybe it's, I, I just, I'm just wondering well, what your response is. preference is a, a strange, you know, I'm a professional actor, you know, and, and so, I love the movies in a strange way as 
I've gotten to know Paul in the year of making this movie and having it come out. And it doesn't surprise me that he and I would intersect because, you know, there aren't, he has a great love of uh, intellectualizing films and thinking about films in a deep and sophisticated way. And he also has a great love of pulp. And, and I do too, you know, my first teacher about movies was Joe Dante. I was 13 years old, I was in this movie called Explorers. Joe had directed The Howling and Gremlins, he came out of Roger Corman. And he used to show River Phoenix and I all these weird pulp movies and talk to us about what they were about. And I've never really thought about art in that way of high art and low art. There's art that people put thought into and there's art that people don't. And high art that people don't put thought into is pretentious. And low art that's just for blood and guts and stupid laughs, it's, you know, it's boring. And, um, but all of it can be beautiful. And, uh, and so I try not to, to think the way that that question is framed. You know what I mean? It also, I'm not such a great actor that I can shamanistically change myself all the time. One of the ways that I can love movies is to change the form I'm working in. It changes the character. You know, if you do, you know, if Cedric is doing a comedy, people expect him, but he's the same artist as in this movie. And, and a lot of people don't know it's the same muscles working about how to tell stories and how to hide secrets and how to imbue meaning. And, um, I find it really exciting. I think it's why Paul and I get along is because I had a friend of mine, this guy I really admire about movies. He's just a friend of mine who's geeks out over movies. And, and, um, I told him, you're going you're gonna to love First Reformed. It's, it's like a Bergman film. And, and then he wrote me after he saw it. He said, it's like a Bergman film if all Bergman did was listen to the Ramones. Uh, and, 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 and I was like, you know what? That's why I love working with Paul. It is like that. And, 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 and so those do... I love a good vampire picture. Do you know? And I like it a lot better than I like some pretentious movie that doesn't really have anything to say but how smart the director is. To, you know, and uh, so that's my answer, I guess. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I just wanted to say to Mr. Schrader, uh, I really appreciate you tackling issues like blasphemy and faith, and um, in in a, a way that's that's deep and and uh, thoughtful, and not just a knee jerk, like we hear so much. Uh, of uh, what is called um, faith, you know, something, this easy idea. Anyway, I just wanted to tell you that. Thanks. You know, where there are, you know, competing notions of what holiness is, I personally feel that holiness happens in the quiet places, that God resides in the silence and in the waiting. But there is a whole kind of wing of Christianity that believes in entertainment gospel. And so it's like a football arena and everybody wearing the same colors and making the same gestures. Um, I think that kind of faith is more about the pleasure one derives from being in a crowd. And I think that what I appreciate about spirituality is the pleasure you get from being alone. You know, it's much closer to meditation than it is to uh, a football match or a Taylor Swift concert. 
Um, so, but I, I, on the other hand, I don't begrudge those who find solace in being in the crowd. Yeah. She wants me to sign her leg so we can get a tattoo. We went from talking about grace and the ineffable to signing legs. And that should end a Paul Schrader Q&A. <laughs> Well, I think we actually we have time for like a couple more questions. Ah, so good. <laughs> All right, who are gonna be? Who has the last two? Uh, last two questions. All right, let's go right here. I'm not gonna ask you to sign any body part, Paul, um, but I will ask you. Um, in my opinion, this guy here, Ethan's character, is working out a lot of anger issues, um, as was Travis Bickle. I could be wrong. Is that the case? And if so, um, is that catharsis for you in some way? And my second question would be, what's, if, if so, what, what, what's the difference between the catharsis you experienced 40 years ago um, versus now? Well, there is a difference between anger and despair. Um, Travis is angry. He's lonely and he's angry. This man is older and he ha suffers from what Kierkegaard called the sickness unto death, despair. So they are different reactions and they occur in my life approximately 40 years apart. Uh, so they are different kinds of catharsis. But I do believe that art is highly functional and that you can use these metaphorical creations. Uh, they, they help you. They get you through things. You know, I, I wrote about Travis Pickle because I was afraid I was becoming him. And maybe I wrote about Reverend Toller because I was afraid of that despair too. So art is not just uh, an expression, it's also a function. It's as functional as any kind of tool, as a hammer or a screwdriver. And the last question right here. Hi, thanks for coming out. Um, one of the things that I really liked about the movie was how quiet it, the film was. So the few parts where you did decide to have background music, how did you come to choose those points of the film? She's asking about uh, music. This type of film, this recessive film, these films usually don't have music in them because music tells you exactly how to feel and the filmmaker wants you to tell, have your own feelings. So you see a, a, a bloody corpse in the snow, he's not gonna tell you whether that's scary or frightening or whatever, you decide. And uh, so I, I you know, forswear music because that's part of the ground rules of this type of cinema. Until about the last third, when I start getting involved in soundscaping. Now, there, there is no music in this film. It's all soundscaping. The composer, Lus Mord, uh, a.k.a. Brian Williams, uh, he takes a composing credit because you don't get um, residuals from sound design. <laughs> but in fact, it is um, sound design. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I toyed with having none or having some. Uh, and you do have diegetic music in that uh, when people sing hymns, you, you have music. Uh, 
but you know, uh, you can't you can't hold the hand of the viewer if you're asking them to walk into the mystery. You have to let them go on their own, and uh, and music doesn't let people go on their own. All right. Well, some of us have legs to sign. So Cedric, Paul, Ethan, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.